Scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 18, going through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. So the passage today is all about expectations, and particularly the thing about expectations where there's a mismatch between what we expect and what we experience. Throughout this whole passage, Jesus and John are having this conversation about expectations, and they're not exactly being met. And then Jesus talks about John in terms of what did you expect to find in him? So it's a whole passage about a mismatch of expectations. And I can't think, you know, I I didn't even want to like uh, put this into words because we live in such a moment where there is such a mismatch between our expectations and our experience. It's almost beyond the ability to talk about. Everything we talk about these days is about a mismatch of what we expected to be happening and what we're experiencing as happening. We can't even talk about plans for next week without sort of asterisking them and saying, well, maybe, who knows? Maybe we'll meet again next week, who knows? Maybe they'll visit us, who knows? Maybe because we're in such a moment of mismatched expectations. How do we live in that kind of world? How do we live faithfully when there is such a dichotomy between our experience and our expectations? And that's not just the world in which we live. It's really the ground of our own spiritual questioning. 
I was thinking this week in light of this passage about the kinds of questions people ask me when I've been a pastor for, you know, 20 some odd years. People ask you lots of questions. You've kind of been there. You've, I think I've kind of heard everything. And there are kind of three categories that people tend to come to me with their questions. And the first is kind of like, hey, I read this passage of scripture. It doesn't make sense. What does this mean? And so there's kind of like exegesis questions that I get. Then there's kind of theology kind of questions like, what's our church think about X, Y, or Z? And why do we think that? Where does that come from? Who, who came up with that idea? And then there's kind of a third category of, my life is somehow falling apart, and it's not at all what I expected to be happening. So either it's biblical, theological, or personal, or kind of the big headings for the questions that I get from folks in my congregation. And behind each one of those is really this problem of mismatched expectations. What I'm getting, what I'm reading, what I'm understanding does not mesh with what I expected. John here in this passage comes to Jesus very pointedly. Uh, if, you have, if you've had any familiarity with the New Testament, John is a figure who is sort of a bull in a china shop. He's a guy who is willing to say the hard thing. He's the one who's willing to just lay it on the line. And he comes after watching Jesus' ministry to him. He really sends these disciples, this, these, you know, sort of a group of people to ask this question on his behalf. Are you the one or should we expect somebody else? Are you the one or should we expect somebody else? That is really, as I thought about it, the core spiritual question. Whether you're on the edge of faith, outside of faith, in faith, been a faithful person for a very long time, on the way out the back door, all across the entire spectrum, there is an underlying question, and John asks it. Are you the one, or should we expect somebody else? To somebody who's looking in, to skeptics or people questioning, uh, this, in some ways, you're already ahead of the game on with understanding this passage, because John is speaking for you so clearly. The questions John is asking are the questions you're asking. Is God knowable? Does he meet my expectations? Is he good? Is he powerful? Because the world in which I live in seems capricious. The world I live in seems like nobody's in charge. The world I live in seems like chaos and the forces of destruction have been unleashed. Are you the one or should I expect somebody else? But that's really the same question for those of us who have been in the faith, been in Christianity, in the walls of the church, behind the stained glass windows for a large portion of our life. This is really the same question we're asking as well. Because we began the Christian life with this enormous rush of expectation and hope. So these big promises, big dreams, big vision for what would happen. 
And some of you are still in that stage, and I'm not saying this to, uh, to make you feel awkward, but one of the things that those of us who persevere over time begin to realize is those big picture, big vision, exciting aspects of our faith hit reality. And life does not turn out the way we expected. Uh, we're in the middle of this. This year has not turned out the way any of us expected it to. And for some of us, it's just more of the same. Our life has not turned out the way we expected. Our marriages have not turned out the way we expected. Our children have not turned out the way we expected. Our own internal progress has not turned out the way we expected. That um, sometimes the theological novelty that got us excited about our faith at the very beginning has hit a speed bump or has gone off the road. And the answers that once gave us great satisfaction and security no longer have the same resonance as they once did. And here's the hardest part for those of us that have persevered over time is our compatriots, the people that have walked this path of faith with us have deeply disappointed us or out and out done us incredible wrong. And we're in this place that our skeptical friends are in and fortunately, John the Baptist himself is in with us. And we have this behind our presenting questions, this fundamental spiritual question that we're really asking of Jesus. Are you the one or should we expect somebody else? How does Jesus respond to that question of John's? When you think about it, it's a fairly blunt question. There's not a lot of pretext to it. There's not a lot of fancy kind of, uh, you know, fixing it up. It's very direct. It's very pointed. It's very to the core. There's an element of hurt to this question. There's an element of challenge to this question. And when Jesus receives it from John's disciples, when he gets that question, what you sense is that he seems absolutely ready for it. He's ready for it, not just in the sense like, oh, I, I'm going to, you know, strike it back. He's ready for it in the sense that he's been waiting for somebody to ask this question. He's eager to receive this question. In this passage, Jesus is not at all, there's no hint at all that he is offended by this question. There's no sense at all that he is um, put off by it. He doesn't respond to John in any sort of shaming kind of way. There's no anger. He simply does things in answering this question that shows that he is ready and eager to have this question asked of him. And so he begins to just proceed to show his character in action. Before he mouths words, before he answers technically word for word John's question, he actually says, okay, I want you to take this back to John, show him. And it says in that hour, which means immediately, he, he receives the question, he tells the disciples, okay, come with me and watch. I'm going to show you some stuff before I tell you some stuff. 
And in that hour, Jesus does some things in verse 21 that immediately show what his character is about. He begins to heal diseases and plagues, and he casts out evil spirits, and he restores the sight of the blind. He acts in ways of healing and restoration. He removes the obstacles that are oppressing his people. He moves in compassion and care and love and concern towards the crowds. He is um, showing a character of mercy and care first. And then in verse 22, he then sends the messengers back with a message. He says, tell him what you saw, and now I'm going to say something to you. And what Jesus says to them is just a reiteration of Isaiah 61. Remember a few weeks ago, Jesus in his hometown synagogue, when he begins to launch his public ministry, reads from Isaiah 61, and he reiterates it here. And he reads from that, and he reiterates it here, because Isaiah 61 is a passage about the character of the Messiah. This is what will happen when the Messiah comes. This is the revelation of the character of God that the Messiah will bring. This is who I am, Jesus is saying. Take this back to John. And then in verse 23 is probably the most peculiar part of Jesus' communication back to John the Baptist. Jesus has preached a whole sermon that we call Sermon on the Mount. And in that Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sections is a section we call the Beatitudes that are blessings. Jesus pronounces blessings on people, right? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are... Here he has a particular blessing just for John. And it's kind of a funny blessing. And blessed, so he's like, tell him what you saw, remind him of Isaiah 61, he knows the scripture just as well as I do. He'll get it. But then he has sort of a personal message to John through this blessing. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I had to really look that up because I'm like, what does this mean? That's just sidebar. Whenever you're reading scripture and you find something that you scratch your head on, that's usually the most fruitful thing to explore. Because in it, you begin to find all kinds of interesting things. And here, as I began to explore this phrase, blessed is he who is not offended by me, what I began to see is what Jesus is telling John is something like, blessed is the one who lets me be me. Blessed is the one who takes God for God. Blessed is the one who does not bring their expectations to the revelation of God's character and try to fit and mold and shape me into their own image. But blessed is the one who simply lets me be me. There's almost a ring here that it feels like an inside joke between John and Jesus to some degree. Because John has been the one who has done this best. He is the forerunner of Jesus. Even in utero, 
John has leapt <laughs> to hear Jesus. When Jesus comes to him for baptism, John is the one who says, there's one greater than me who has come on the stage. John is the one who tells his own disciples, follow him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John has always, at every point, says, he is greater, I am less. And here, one more time, Jesus is saying to John, don't be offended by me, John. You haven't been offended by me yet. Don't start now. Let me be. Let me show you something you need to know. And the last thing that John needs to know that Jesus is showing him here is kind of what we talked about in our call to worship. Isaiah 31 has this sort of split image of the vengeance of God and the mercy of God, right? And John has come on the stage very much promoting that Jesus is a refining fire. In fact, in Luke 3, verse 16, he says, this one who is coming will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. <laughs> Those aren't soft words. Those are retaliatory words. Those are vengeance words. John is looking to Jesus to reveal justice, to bring about like annihilation of enemies. And as John watches Jesus's ministry, he's slowly having his expectations being reset. That as he watches from the sidelines, he begins to see Jesus is not so much waging a war of vengeance as a war of mercy. That at every point, Jesus is showing mercy. Tax collectors are receiving mercy. Prostitutes are receiving mercy. The outsiders are getting in. Even Roman centurions are called people of great faith. John is being pushed in his expectations to understand something. That vengeance and justice are a pathway that opens up to actually the heart of who God really is. Merciful. There's a passage uh, in Lord of the Rings uh, and in the, the Return of the King, uh, Aragon becomes king and it's after this great battle and he goes into the houses of healing and he becomes a healer. He begins to help people heal and be restored and he, there's a phrase that goes up from the people, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And it becomes a song, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. That's what Jesus is telling John here. The hands of the king, the hands of the Messiah, are the hands of a healer. I have come to heal. I've come to restore. I've come to show mercy. I've come to liberate my people from their true oppression to sin and to death and to bring about reconciliation and healing and wholeness. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And how does John respond? There's lots of places in scripture where I wish Luke had done a little bit more and added a few extra details, and this is one of them. Like, come on, huge buildup. Tell me how John responded. 
But we don't get words, but we do know what happened to John. John was the most popular figure of the age. He was um, outside of Jesus, uh, sort of Jesus is beginning his ministry at this point. John's ministry is beginning to taper off. But even at this moment that John is asking Jesus, John is incredibly popular. John also, as we know, speaks his mind pretty freely, and he says something against Herod that gets him into trouble um, shortly after this encounter with Jesus. And John could have easily, at that point, called for vengeance. He had literally thousands and thousands of people who would followed his very word. And if he had called for insurrection, there would be blood in the streets. But John is silent. John is willing to undergo unjust suffering because I think he has received this message from Jesus to not be offended by him. He has come to see that the greater thing is mercy, that God's character, his revelation, is not of vengeance but of reconciling and restoring everything that was broken. And that Jesus is the one, the true one, the long expected one, the one that defies my expectations is actually the one long expected. Where when God shows up, he shows us his character and his character is mercy all the way through. And because of that, John is able to submit to unjust suffering. He's able to go into a mismatch of his expectations and experience with power because he knows this world, this situation will not last. But the kingdom of this one who brings mercy will last. And I can stake my life on it. And I can allow even terrible things to happen because this one will have the final word. So how do we ask this question? Well, are you the one or is there somebody else? Should I expect somebody else? This passage actually lays out a pretty interesting pathway for us. It's not like, um, you know, it's not like marbles in a bag and you can just pull one out and it's own individual one. It's more like a connected puzzle. And each piece kind of fits and helps the next stage. And what we see here is that this pathway that we're shown here helps us in our experience of a mismatch of expect expectations and experience. And the first step is admitting that we have the question, embracing John's question. Are you the one? And know that it's okay. It is okay. And more than okay. Jesus seems to want you to ask him this question. When our experience doesn't match our expectations. Are you the one? How do you and I ask that question well? One, will we own it ourselves? We admit to ourselves we have that question. Instead of sweeping it under the rug, instead of pretending it's not there, Instead of just, um, you know, walking on, we actually pause and let that question sink in. It means we talk to God about it. 
We frame it in our prayers. We talk to him about it. We begin to talk to a trusted friend and share that experience of the mismatch between our experience and our expectations. We use counselors and godly people who have been there and through those situations who can offer us wise counsel on how to shape that question so that it flows into a healing encounter rather than into bitterness. That's sort of step one. Step two is going to Jesus with the question. That we can go to Jesus with this question. We can actually frame it to him. You know, John saw Jesus is coming and he would baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. And he did. But it just wasn't the way that Jesus thought he was going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. When we read further in Luke's story, we get to the day of Pentecost, and the day of Pentecost is Holy Spirit and fire all over the place. But it is a healing fire. It is not a destructive fire. The fire that comes into the church is for the proclamation of good news, for speaking in the languages of the world, for being able to speak and step into the experiences of all kinds of people with good news that Jesus is their Savior. And so when we go to Jesus now in Holy Spirit, it means that he is present with us even more closely than he was to John the Baptist. John the Baptist had to send a group of people to meet with Jesus. You and I do not have to go any further than our seats right now to bring our questions to Jesus. Because he is in us. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And he is present with us. And we can go to him with our questions. Thirdly, we can, we can stay fixed on the character of God as merciful. One of the things that Jesus is doing here is giving John a way, sort of a, a set of glasses to read everything with. He's like, you, you, you're looking at the world, but your expectations are off because you're not seeing reality as it really is. Let me give you a set of spectacles to see. And the eyes that Jesus is giving John to see, that he's giving us to see, is looking through the eyes of mercy. The ultimate revelation of God is the revelation of mercy, that Jesus is the healer, he is the one who's come to make whole. He is the one who is the very essence of God. And at God's very essence is a heart of mercy and love, of long-suffering and care and tenderness. That God is not a God whose vengeance is central. He is a God whose love and mercy is central to who he is. And as we approach our own lives, as we read our lives, as we read God's word through that lens of mercy, it begins to open up our understanding and our experience in ways that gives us life and peace and health. I was talking with somebody, um, I'm always talking to somebody about how they're reading scripture. And one of the things that always comes up is God seems so mean in the Old Testament. <laughs> That's a great question. My mom told me for years that's why she didn't believe, was God just seemed so mean in the Old Testament. But 
to my mom, to others, I offer the same counsel. Look at it through the lens of mercy. How would a merciful God act in this? How would a merciful God allow his people to maybe even misrepresent him sometimes? How would a merciful God step into this situation? And with those eyes, those spectacles, it begins to open up scripture and it begins to open up life. And we begin to see ourselves in fresh and new ways. And then we wrestle with the challenge not to be offended by Jesus, to lean in. To not be offended by Jesus, to let Jesus be Jesus. Not to frame Jesus so much in the uniform and in the, the things that we love, but to allow him to be who he really is. Leaning into that is the work of the church. It's challenging at times. I want Jesus to look like me. I, there's a great book on the images of Jesus, and basically every culture, every people reframes Jesus in their own image. And it's a curious thing that we do that, because in so many ways, we don't want to be offended by him. We don't let his offense come to us. We don't let him be him. Instead, we're all subtly trying to frame him to look just like us. And when we do that, we fail to really understand his character. And then as we let mercy in, it begins to have a work in us that's transformative. Uh, when we read the Psalms, the Psalms are full of vengeance against enemies. <laughs> but then when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray for our enemies. That begins a subtle work of reframing. I can experience and understand my expectations. My experience has been one of hurt. But when I make that move through Jesus, through mercy, to begin to look at even my enemies through the eyes of his eyes, through mercy, it begins to change my attitude. It begins to change my heart. It begins to eventually change my actions to become a person of mercy. It's a process. But it begins by us asking this question. Are you the one, or should we expect somebody else? Uh, when I pastored in Salt Lake, I sent out a weekly email. And in that weekly email, I wrote out my kind of call to worship each week because nobody, unlike here, nobody showed up on time for, for services. So um, I thought, well, if I email them my call to worship, they'll read it. And so that call to worship became a way for me to reflect on the passage with my congregation before we got together on a Sunday. And I was in Advent thinking through this idea of mis-expectations, that what I expected was not what I was experiencing or what we oftentimes didn't experience. And in the Christmas story, I began to see that's exactly what's happening, that Here's what I wrote. God seems to prefer this mode of arrival, of sneaking up on us, quiet, unobtrusive, unobtrusive, catching us off balance. Perhaps this is why I often miss his arrival in my life. He's not like a loud neighbor announcing his arrival, nor is he an overachiever dutifully arriving five minutes early. Rather, he's like that friend who slips in beside you at the party whose presence slowly unfolds by their effect upon you. And you finally say, oh, look who's here. 
Jesus has arrived never to leave. He is present. That's what his name Emmanuel means, God with us. He has slipped in. Maybe you don't see him yet. Perhaps you've expected him to arrive in some other way. Let me ask you to simply pause in the car, backed up in the mall traffic, in the elevator as you head to a meeting, in that still house as you lock the door for the night and ask out loud, Lord, where are you? Where have you slipped into my life? And when he announces his presence, maybe the next day in an inconvenient moment, turn to him, welcome him, follow him. Because this is the God he has always been. Jesus is not what we expect, but he is the long expected one. He has come with the hands of a healer to transform and change us to being whole, to being well, to being fully his. Trust him. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we come to you and we know we are half formed in our expectations and our experiences. We understand that we have questions for you that we withhold from you. We understand that we do not trust the way of mercy but rather we cling to the methods of vengeance. And so, Jesus, we pray, I pray, that these words of Jesus, yours to John, your disciple, would deeply impact us to free and liberate us to become your people. That the character you reveal would become the character we express in the way we live our life. Amen.